Welcome to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast. In this podcast, you'll get discussions and interviews 100% dedicated to helping financial advisors with their marketing challenges, as well as sharing what's working well in their practice. The Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast is produced by FinancialAdvisors.com, the premier directory for financial advisors across the U.S. Your hosts and panelists include Jim Eckel, president of FinancialAdvisors.com, and Ken Tucker, marketing solutions architect. So thank you for checking us out, and please let us know how we can better help you grow your advisory practice. Hello there. Welcome to another show of the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing, brought to you by FinancialAdvisor.com, the consumer-friendly, advisor-driven, comprehensive marketing service for independent financial advisors. My co-host is Ken Tucker. Welcome, Ken. And Ken's going to talk a little bit about our new services through Financial Advisor Support. Yeah, so we have launched an entire series of digital marketing, actually broader than digital marketing services for financial advisors. So it starts with reviews, social media, creating original content, website design, and then also sales funnels and lead generator tools. With that, I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks very much, Ken. Today's guest is Ekena Anya Gafu. He is the CFO and Director of Planning at Bay Street Capital Holdings. I'd like to welcome you, Ikenna. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here and really looking forward to just expanding the conversation around what we do and uh, how we partner with Financial Advisor. Very good. Yep, we're real close. We're getting there. (laughs) Ekenna, I got it. Could you please tell us how long you've been a planner and where are you located in the United States? I've been doing this just about five years. I started in 2016 with Charles Schwab. I went from Schwab to TD Ameritrade, had a pretty successful career there. And now that I'm with Bay Street Capital, we're based in the Silicon Valley. We do have uh, clients really on both coasts. Quite frankly, we have clients in California, as well as clients on the East Coast being DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And then I myself, I reside in Arizona part-time. And then I spend the other part of my time in the Bay Area. What city in the Bay Area do you live or you spend part of your time? Emeryville specifically. And Emeryville is really close to Oakland. In fact, the bridge that comes from San Francisco to the quote unquote East Bay lands right in Emeryville as well. And where the Bay Bridge connects and everyone knows it going towards San Francisco on the other side is Emeryville and Oakland. I'm a Cal State Hayward grad, so I live in the Bay Area. They changed the name back to Cal State Hayward. I, I know it was Cal State Hayward and Cal State East Bay. And they've gone back and forth three times, I think, in the last 10 years. I didn't hear that. So they changed it back? I didn't hear that. That yes. would be a good thing. Yeah. Oh, calling it East Bay? East Bay was terrible. I think they probably last lost half, no, probably 80% of their alumni <laughs> by calling it East Bay. It's hard to actually collect gifts from an alumni when you change the name of the school. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that. But anyway, that's good to know. You, you have a, a particular niche that did you w- want to discuss, and I think it has to do with diversity and inclusion. It's very top of mind these days. So it's about. It's all about time, and it's been. Uh, we've been wanting to go there for years and years. And I think we're on that road, and would like to be able to have you expand upon that. What you do with people, how you work, and. 
especially the diversity as it relates to the financial advisory services. That's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Just giving a broad overview, Bay Street Capital Holdings, we are a minority-owned firm based in the Silicon Valley. Primarily, our goal is to make our clients more money and to beat the S&P 500, which I would say most people know about that. And that's our goal as a firm from investment. We do a lot of different types of investments, primarily focusing renewable energy technology, education, and DEI efforts. We found that in the public equity space, technology and renewable energy historically have done really well, specifically technology, uh, as we've seen really time and time again, that's the lead. We think in the renewable energy space, it's very well situated really for the incoming money that's going to be coming from the infrastructure package. There's so many different packages out there at yeah. this point. It's confusing. Uh, that we think, yeah, yeah, that we think that we'll see uh, a positive growth there. And then also just more on the, so we do the public equities. We also do private equity as well as venture capital. And so we're really covering the box in terms of investments, right? Just depending on your own need, your own situation and your own risk tolerance, we can really build out a complete portfolio and maybe just a little bit more custom than the average. So that's what we're doing from a firm side. And then on the DEI side, what we know is very true that when you look at your 401k, there's a group that essentially gets to choose what type of funds that you're in. That's usually called the investment advisor or the advisor to the plan. This is a very big industry, multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, currently about 98.5% of it uh, is managed by white male-owned companies. And so from a DEI perspective... Excuse me, just for our listeners, can you explain what DEI is? in case? Yeah, diversity, know? equity, and inclusion. It's really the thought process that, hey, some things aren't always equal and that you have to almost give it a push to even get close to equality. It's been a while, and I think that people have thought about this for a while, but now it's really out there. And so from an inclusion piece, what Bay Street is saying is, hey, from an investment advisor standpoint for managing money, from an investment advisor standpoint for helping with 401k plans and things of that nature, right now it's really cornered into one area and that's essentially white male owned organizations. 98.5%, meaning that 1.5% of all the money managed, and this is a multi-billion dollar industry, is for everyone else, not even just minorities. This includes women-led organizations, things like that. And so we spend a lot of time talking about this. We start to feel that we're really starting to see the difference. Maybe in the last couple of months, we've seen a couple of different RFPs or requests for proposal. And now there's a diversity section at the bottom. That's something that in my whole career, I've never seen. It's just, hey, you know, what's the information about your firm. Now they're asking more about diversity metrics. Now, it's not just a black and white thing. It's a, how many women do you have? How right. many women in leadership? What type of other ethnicities do you have? But we st are starting to see that the ball is moving forward. And so from a DEI standpoint, this is something that's very dear to myself. And I think that there's, when you look at uh, how many large organizations are out there with 401ks, that this can help. And so that's what we're doing on the institutional side, I mean, more on the public equities and kind of the retail, what we consider just more of the individual side. What we're doing there is really just helping with the financial literacy. 
for the most part, the minorities have trailed kind of their white peers in investing historically. We did see one of the biggest jumps in 2020, almost 20 plus percent of minorities entered into the stock market. I think it has to do with kind of the game. Don't hate me for this, but I think there was a lot more free time. People had some additional money potentially, right. uh, although it was during COVID, but we saw that change. And so um, that's, that's what Tree's doing on our side. And we're really trying to just push the envelope and make our clients more money. Really, it's DEI. There are two components of it. One is internally how you run and manage your firm and make Correct. a difference throughout the entire industry. But then the second thing is outreach to all of the potential clients to get more inclusion and diversity and equity across the entire populace. Exactly. How does that work, Ken? You said 98%. You're talking about when Procter & Gamble or some big Fortune 500 sends out an RFP, because I've heard that when it comes to institutional money managers, out of every 10, they keep the top nine and throw the 10th one out. So it's all about delivering alpha. And if you can't deliver alpha, then you're out. So what you're saying is that right now, since 98% are controlled by white controlled investment managers, yep. now you're starting to see that including the RFPs is the fact that, well, we understand that return is the bottom line, but there's more than just a bottom line. We wanna diversify the people that manage our assets. And we wanna know more about who are the principles of that company? And we want to spread this around a little bit. Exactly. And it's still a lot of work that needs to be done. What we're noticing is a lot of institutions, I think the first thing that they've done is said, hey, we have 100% that we normally allocate to X amount of companies. We're now going to reserve. And the number that we have found is 3% now for diverse managers, up to 10% or whatever percent that they, I would say 3% is what we'll find in the endowment space, more on the 401k space, maybe a little bit more, just depending on who's making the decision. And that's what they're doing. Once again, very much dominated, 98%. And by at least giving us minority managers the opportunity to get into the door, we think that will change. In fact, just today I was on another call and they were talking about a UC system that saw tremendous growth, something like 29% for their fiscal year. And a lot of that growth was attributed that they gave 10% of the their whole endowment to a minority firm. That minority firm outpaced and essentially performed better than everyone else. And so a large part of that 29% came from them. And I think that you'll notice that in life and any boardroom or really any decision, if you have everyone that looks the same, similar type of answers, when you start to diversify, you will notice that your returns yeah. also will start to go up as well. And this has been a trend that has been pretty consistent. And so we're just trying to get the message out that, hey, by going with a diverse firm, you're not just saying, hey, I'm doing this to feel good, but you're doing this to feel good and make money, which once again, Bay Street says, hey, we're trying to make our clients money. Back when I worked for an information technology company, I managed the solutions business for a woman and minority owned firm. We were able to do a lot of business with the federal government, and the federal government has always had some very specific programs in place for the 8A program and things like that. Corporate world, my experience with that is they have what they call vendor lists, and you have the right to be one of 10 vendors or something like right. that. How you're seeing it working right now, you're one of a, a multitude of players because you, you still have to prove yourself. You still have to perform. Correct. That's always going to be the name of the game, regardless of who you are. 
Yeah, and I think it's a, a little bit of one, when we talk to organizations, large organizations, I don't want to say any names today, but um, often it's like, hey, we've thought about this, but we just can't find them. We always say, hey, different resources out there that you can find organizations that would fit into what you're looking for. So that's the first thing. I think there's a, a quick, easy way. If there's only 10 of them, we've talked to them already, it doesn't work. Where now we're trying to point at different areas where, all right, there are actually ways to figure out these additional vendors or people that can help. And then I think a big barrier for a long time has been that the requirements to even apply generally are going to be top 1% companies, if that makes sense. And often when we look at just the spread of how the companies and RIAs, institutions, you name it when it comes to finance, top 1% still very much looks similar. And even the requirements to apply at times have been somewhat exclusionary. And I think when firms start to make the actual decision that, hey, we're going to use 3% or 10% or whatever amount that they would like to allocate. I think by making that decision, they're starting to realize, okay, we may have to change the requirements. And it's just the reality of you can get the performance, but you may have to adjust slightly. And so yeah. um, that, that's something that we're seeing on our side. And it's something that I think people are becoming more and more aware of. Last year, I, I've been doing this for a while. And this year is the first time seeing back-to-back RFPs where they had some type of diversity. What's really interesting too is, and I don't know if you've experienced this yet or not, but actually it puts an undue burden on your marketing and sales efforts because you have to connect with a champion in the organization. Every large organization is going to have some diversity office. So you have to connect with them. They're cheerleaders for you. They can connect you, but they can't purchase. Then you have to work with the purchasing people, and then you have to work with the ultimate decision makers. So you actually have to have a three-pronged approach to have the opportunity for that business. And I don't think a lot of people really realize that. And if you understand how that game works and you're really good at it, you can be very effective at it, but it is extra work and, and a lot more marketing and, and sales energy and activity would normally be required. Oh, I, I completely agree. Yeah. So if you look at this from a from mutual fund, because mutual funds are companies themselves, there is restrictions with regards to mutual funds of how they're diversified. I last time I checked, you couldn't have more than one more than ten percent in one specific company. Depends upon the how the mutual fund set up. If you look at it from that point, you're saying that the people on the committee are so undiversified that ninety eight percent of them are all the same. And if they took the same rules they have for mutual funds, it would be illegal. Everyone understands what happens when you don't diversify. That's Absolutely. the reality of investing. And this is just what we find time and time again. It's been there for so long that you're really trying in something that Bay Street realizes we're trying to almost reshape someone's mind because often when we do go into yeah. a firm now this is more on the institutional side not on the individual uh, i think individuals themselves understand okay yeah that's that makes sense let's work together but i think on the institutional side then you start to run into well, i'm actually the person who signed off on this I don't want to necessarily be found to be wrong. And so that's one thing. Or you just get someone that can deflect and say, this is actually how it's been for the last 20 years. I don't want to change that. Those are the things that yeah. we're dealing with on a day to day. But I do believe that as we shape kind of the mentality that by going with a diverse firm, you can still make more money. I think that we're going to start to see more and more people hopping on board the DEI train. From the information technology world, it's like, 
nobody ever lost their job by hiring IBM. That's exactly right, Ken. And I unfortunately, mean, I... you have to do that. Part of what you guys are doing, I'd love to know how you guys are doing this. I've talked a little bit about it, but there's education that you have to do. And, and that's got to be a, a really important aspect of your go-to-market strategy. So can you talk a little bit more maybe about some of the educational things that you're doing? Yeah, we look at it from uh, everything in the individual versus the institutional side of things. On the individual side, it's where we start. Uh, even for the institutional, it sounds a little different, but we're big in financial literacy, meaning that as we talk to our clients, we're always trying to give them the information of why we make decisions. It's one thing to fall in love with a company's performance. Uh, I think it's a whole nother thing. And you find lifetime clients when they fall in love with your decision-making process. And so that's yeah. what we spend a lot of time on our individual side, really helping out our clients do. And so that's how we've provided education there. Now on the institutional, it's slightly different. What we found is that financial literacy is a real thing. The average person, if you ask them about their 401k, may not even know really what they're invested in. If you were to ask, can you tell us about the fees in your 401k? Yeah. That's also a north of 90% number where the average person, yeah. most people will say, yeah, no, I couldn't tell you any type of fees. You, no you. idea. And so there's a big education piece to that. And so what we've done is we've rolled out this very wide ranging financial literacy from people who are just starting in the career people just starting with certain companies. We have an African-American ERG. We have an ERG for women, actually. That's our most popular women in finance. And we have one for just really all types of lifestyles. And so we've been able to do that. And what we've done is we've entered into different companies uh, through kind of their ERG channels and really have found that people like the information that we're providing. They inquire, how can we work more? As we start to develop those relationships, sometimes you find someone who knows someone who then is now you're talking to someone who's actually a decision maker. And so we've grown our own business just by giving people information that they didn't have. And by doing that, they try to tell someone else and eventually kind of playing the telephone game as someone picks up the phone who really does have insight or has the ear of someone who has insight of how do you become an advisor to the planet? It's somewhat of a longer process, shaping the reality that this is how it's been for decades, really, since the finances started. And now we're you know, a year and a half into making this big push, and we're seeing some tremendous... You know, that that's interesting. I'm curious to see, and maybe it's too early to tell, but when you make that level of investment with education, my experience is that usually winds up getting you to have better clients. Correct. Because they understand what you do, why you do it what your values are, how certain things are important that just maybe not aren't very obvious. If, if it hasn't manifested itself yet, I think it probably will in a big way for you. Oh, yeah. We've definitely have seen a big growth in our clients from the account openings. Uh, we can see every seminar that we do. And every time we do financial literacy, there's definitely a small spike in that. And so we're starting to see that. And for us, uh, we have two main pillars. There's other pillars, but the ones that we rely on the most uh, being transparency and follow through. So that's what we're doing on our side. And okay. we have found it is a longer process, but clients are more happy. Our retention rate stays very high uh, and we're able to continue growing our own business. So is there any digital aspect to that or are these in-person seminars that you're doing in education? How does that work? 
Yeah, it's almost all digital. Quite okay. frankly, once again, I live in Arizona, part time in the Bay Area, and my business partner he lives in the Bay Area. One of my other owners or colleagues lives in Southern California, and so we're spread out. And so what we're doing is across the country, doing just different Zoom meetings with different ERG, providing them kind of any material that we need beforehand, and that's what we've been able to spread our wings and say, hey, we can cover all types of geographical locations. Is that something you're doing individually, one-on-one with different parties, or is there any public-facing component to the education that you guys are doing? Yeah, from a one-on-one on the individual side, yeah, all education. So when we have an hour meeting, generally there's about five to 10 minutes in almost every meeting where we're explaining thought process because we really believe that if someone understands why you're making the decision, whether you're beating the market, tied with the market, or even slightly down, you really just have a more committed person because they understand that, hey, I see why they made the decision it's okay. And hopefully our process leads to a better return more times than not. We can say that it has at this point, but just in case down the line. So from the individual side, that's where we're spending the education and meeting the meeting. And then on the institutional side, yeah, essentially what we're finding is larger organizations that have ERG groups usually have five or six ERGs, whether it's like veterans, like an LBGTQ, there's usually like an African-American woman and then some type of Latin or Latinx type of ERG. And so what we've done is essentially rolled out what we consider most ERGs or most companies, if they do have an ERG, have these type. And so for all of the ones that we would consider to be popular, we now also have a group or a specific financial literacy seminar for that group if not a couple. So it keeps the information fresh, um, keeps the people engaged, and we're always trying to just push the envelope forward for the education. I wanted to ask you a question that as far as, so you're located in the Arizona, you've got an owner in Southern California and the Bay Area. How do you actually market with, you mentioned education and so forth, but do you have through your websites or your digital marketing presence, how do you put it all together? Or or is that something that might be a challenge to you right now. Realistically, what we've noticed is the power of Google, right? Like people, Google financial advisor. If you're on a platform that when someone Googles that, it comes up towards the top of that, hey, you're probably going to get some business right now. And so it's kind of determining, hey, how much can you afford from a marketing? But that's where we've really been able to grow a lot of our individuals and then just talking to them about what we do and they have jobs, things like that, or careers. And they say, oh, I'm part of the ERG. He should talk to us. And that's really how we've gotten a lot of the door in, right? Uh, Hey, this is all the things we do. They introduce us to one person. Usually we do one ERG and then very quickly another ERG who maybe has a different member says, oh, you should do something for us. And then it spreads out. Uh, Next thing now there's a high level who's like, who's this firm who keeps doing all of these different engagements with our employees and now they're interested and like i said it's a longer process but this is how we've grown do you think there's an opportunity to assist or run some kind of an expert group with these different ergs across these different companies for financial literacy I'm just, it, as you're talking it sounds to me like you have the opportunity to really become the expert in this field and create a forum where people can share ideas 
and express their concerns, which would just magnify the referrals and the recommendations that you guys are getting. Yeah, I think there's definitely some synergies, right? Um, now, given just from doing it business to business, so we haven't necessarily added it all in one place, but I, I think that's a great idea, especially as the conversation for the different energies is similar. We're just tweaking it to be more about that specific demographic. Because we all know that ESG's been been, but I don't believe... <laughs> DEI has been actually chosen. It's it's the term is somewhat new to myself and it's probably new to a lot of people. That to me spells opportunity for gentlemen like yourself and his partners to really capture that, especially with regards to the financial literacy all tied together under the banner of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, for us, we do always tell people that we can compete with anyone, right? So it's not just that we're a diverse firm beating other diverse firms. To our performance, we hold true that, hey, this is how we're moving the ball forward for our clients and for the institutions that we help advise on theirs. But we do think to get to the door, sometimes people have to have that reality, kind of that glass break of, oh, okay, I do need to look outside of what mm -hmm. I've had for the last 20 years. And that's, you hit it right on the head, Jim. Yep, definitely. Are you doing any kind of the more traditional marketing, direct mail, in-person networking, even though in-person networking has been a challenge, obviously, in the last year and a half or so? Is there anything like that you guys have been doing? And if so, has that been effective for you? Yeah, great question. The only in-person marketing we're considering at this point is the end of the year. We're going to have like a holiday party for our clients and ask them to bring a plus one. But outside of that, no, it's 100% online. We realize that most people, even for myself, when I think of my own decision-making processes, uh, if there's something of, all right, for example, I just hung up a TV in my bedroom. Uh, it was on a stand, now it's mounted. I said, I've never mounted a TV, so I Googled how to mount a TV. Immediately, a couple of ads popped up, mounting TV companies. I clicked both of those ads, one was cheaper than the other. That's the place that came to mount it. My decision-making process is generally founded off of Google. Obviously, hey, like I'm reading things, but even to get to those articles, you're generally starting with Google for a right. lot of things. It's just right. the reality yeah. of yeah. how it goes. And so yeah. for me, we've essentially spent a lot of time Googling top financial advisor in the areas that we want and the organizations that popped up at the top of the list. And we tried our best uh, to make a good effort to get on all of those. And by doing that, We've essentially kind of uh, riding the coattails of other people's, uh, at least for the marketing where it's added to us there. And then people are choosing us because we often look different from the other advisors on the platform. We say things slightly different than the other advisors. And from that perspective, I think that's where Bay Street has grown. So it's really Google, those type of trends, websites, the in-person event for a holiday party, and then growing through the financial literacy, just being able to speak to many people at a time. That's yeah. how we've grown realistically and the mail, things like that we've considered. But when you find something that's working and you see your pay every month and the amount of clients uh, increase every month, I mean, it's hard to sometimes say, why are you going to try to deviate from that, at least in my opinion. Sure. And as you do more education and you help people understand some different things, they're going to be what we call in the marketing industry, long tail keywords, where people are going to start doing more complex searches than just financial advisor plus a location, they're going to start to add some qualifiers to that. DEI financial advisor location or something like that. That's going to give you a great opportunity 
to jump to the top because there's probably no competition right now for certain kinds of those things. And with the education that you guys are doing, you can map out that path. Yeah, no, I agree. There's something, once again, Google, I don't work there, I promise, but Google Trends, uh, you can actually see in certain areas what keywords are people using. And we write articles and we do a lot of article writing. We're very aware of this, right? Uh, yeah. You know, listen to Michael Kittis, if I'm saying his name wrong, my apologies. And, and that's a big thing for him is making sure that when you're writing things that how is this going to appear or how will this positively affect you? And so yeah. we've definitely listened to him. He did his advice on that. And so that's yeah. what we're doing and it's worked. Our magic success. Absolutely. And clarity of message is super important too. Just because they get on your website because you were able to get on Google uh, My Business, on the Google Maps result, or just the Google Organic results, they still have to click and what they see on the homepage has to resonate and be really clear. And I think the risk that a lot of financial advisors run and you guys are bucking the norm, which I think is really good for you, is that everybody sounds the same. Right. If you can stand out in a positive way, in a way that resonates and connects with the site visitors, you're going to convert those people more often yeah. than not. You know? Absolutely agree. When you look at the 400,000 financial advisor, investment advisors in the country, they're probably, as you said, probably 75, 80% white males. And then, of course, there's a percentage of, of females and it trickles down from there. I think what Ken mentioned to you is the fact that the long tail keyword like diversity, equity, inclusion, <laughs> and that becomes part of your marketing. <laughs> There's no competition out there for that right now. That might be a good way to, 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 to do things. Yeah. No, I agree. If you look at even, you take a smaller number, uh, so I'm a, a CFP or certified financial planner for anyone who doesn't know what that is. There's something like 75,000 members. Out of that, only about 1.5% are right about there are African-American. And we see time and time again that, you know, it's just a small delay. We're catching up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that people, once again, earlier when I said about half of our clients are in California, the other half in DMV, uh, that's not a coincidence. Uh, the DMV or the kind of tri-state area of Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, mm -hmm. big concentration of African-Americans with wealth and minorities with wealth, not just African-Americans. Uh, and right. so we found that people are looking to work with people that they think will understand. Uh, not mm -hmm. to say that we don't work with everyone else, but we look at very realistically, where are we opening accounts? There are certain trends. That's something that we found, and we hope that we continue to grow at, the, at least at the rate that we're growing now. All, all this is awesome, Mick. I love hearing stuff like this because as a marketer myself, the hardest thing is to get people to understand that you don't market to everybody for everything. Right. right. <laughs> you don't have enough money. There is no way you're going to outperform everybody out there. It just isn't going to happen. So when you find that niche, that core messaging, that ideal client focus and that strategy to get there, that's where the power really is. Have you ever read the uh, story about Robert Johnson? Economics? No, I haven't. Robert Johnson is the gentleman that started and owns Black Entertainment Television. Okay. And that okay, might actually, be I've heard of him, but I, I yeah. haven't heard his story yet. Marvelous story about when he started and how he started. You talk about breaking some glass ceilings. He was in the entertainment business with all the advertisements and why should we buy this? I'm, I'm going to be showing this. They're going, who's watching it? Can you imagine what he did go through that? But he yeah. really broke ground. Well, that probably in the 50 years ago, late 60s, early 70s, that he's been doing it. 
the Robert Johnson of the DEI, <laughs> the financial services arena. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some big trailblazers that we follow on our side. I think you know, Robert Smith has done some amazing things, and he's really, to me, the model person of, hey, you can help and also help bring people up along with you. And yeah, it's, it's still a lot of work left to do. We are happy oh, that yeah. we're in a position that we're feeling that the ball is moving that we're not just pushing onto the building and the building is staying still it feels like we're starting to slowly move towards a more equitable and in, you know, kind of inclusive environment as a whole and our overall kind of outlook is very positive right? from the overall market to just where we're seeing this go and as Bay Street grows we hope that we can do more to expedite the process of equality. Yeah. Akina, how can people find out more about you and Bay Street Capital. Easiest way, Google us. Uh, no, I'm kidding. BayStreetCapitalHoldings.com <laughs> is our website. We're also on Financial Advisor, so you can find us there as well. And yeah, those are the two ways to get in contact. You can always reach out to us. We're always happy to have the conversation and lead people in the positive direction. This has been great, Ekana. It's, it's very nice to have uh, you as a guest. Hopefully, the audience that is listening to live on Facebook will understand more now about diversity, equity, inclusion. It's a growing thing and more people should understand the benefits that accrue because there's very many positive benefits that accrue, especially when you said about the fact that they had a 20% jump in people investing during the COVID. They may have time or money, whatever the case may be. And once you take that first step, it's you never can go back. It's still okay. right. I've crossed this threshold, what's the next door? And for a lot of people just crossing that first or second door and they're good. So I think what you're doing is a good thing for the, your community and for the industry and the United States as a whole, to tell you the truth. And I think I it's agree. great. Absolutely. Um, we wanna thank you very much. Do you have anything, any final last words and before we end this broadcast? Not necessarily. I just wanna say thank you for inviting me. We love to be able to shed light into this. We call it the biggest elephant in the room because it has the most dollars attached to it. And we appreciate that. I appreciate it. Bay Street appreciates it. Um, William Houston, the founder uh, and CEO, we appreciate it as a whole. And thank you for that. And if ever there's another opportunity, we would love to have this uh, chance to talk because uh, this conversation has yeah. been great. I and mean, we look forward to seeing how this produces. There's got to be a whole lot more too. There is. <laughs> yeah, just I was trying to give I mean, you the high levels, but there, there's more to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very awesome. good. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Ekana. Thank you very much, Ken, for being my co-host. And we want to thank all of our listeners for listening to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Show and soon be podcast. Look for it on financialadvisorsupport.com. And thank you again, everyone. Just want to wish you a great day and a better weekend coming soon. Thanks. Bye for now. Thanks, Ken and Jen. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please be sure and subscribe to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love for you to review us wherever you get your podcasts. Visit financialadvisorsupport.com for more episodes, our financial advisor directory, our blogs and video resources, and links to set up a free consultation with the hosts of this podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned.